The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. You're listening to Business Is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business Is Boring is made by The Spin-Off with help from Callahan Innovation, New Zealand's innovation agency. Here's your host, Simon Pound. 25% of the population experiences seasickness to enough of a level it can mean they find ocean going from the uncomfortable to the impossible. And if you happen to be, say, an engineer working on a sea-based wind farm who's in that 25%, you might find getting to and from work a nightmare and might not be much good once you get there. It's a problem that today's guest knows well. Dudley Jackson loves the sea and with dreams of bringing his kids up on the water, sold the family home and moved his life, including two kids and a dog, onto a 40-foot yacht. Problem was, he was one of the 25%. The big dream had to be put on ice and he went back to working in IT, but he kept his interest up getting his commercial skipper ticket and teaching people to sail. Then a new technology came along that caught his interest as it was making a lot of people sick. Dudley looked at virtual reality headsets and had a light bulb moment. If some people found these sets created motion sickness, could they be used to reverse that feeling and get people out of motion sickness too? It was a unique idea that with his background in IT, he was able to experiment with and landed a concept. His company, Sea Level, has picked up funding, Callahan R&D support, and is now in use with operators who have many people to take on the ocean, like the Navy, tourism operators, and wind farms. To talk the journey, the idea, changing focus due to COVID, and what's next, Dudley Jackson, founder of Sea Level, joins us now by Zoom. Kia good morning. Thank you for being here, Dudley. Good morning, Simon. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, great. Hey, uh, tell us, t- uh, wh- wh- where are we Zooming you from today? So I'm calling from Littleton, down the South Island. And um, yeah, I uh, live fairly close to the sea. Uh, I've got a view from the house over the harbour. Um, and we can see the vessels coming in and out. And tell me about your hopes for a life on the sea. And what happened when you sold up and took the family on the yacht? Well, you know, I guess like many uh, middle-aged men, I had a bit of a dream of escaping reality. I was doing a nine-to-five job like we all do, and I was in IT engineering, which is quite a stressful job. I'd already got into sailing quite a bit, and uh, I had a dream like most sailors that I would buy a larger yacht and, you know, put the family on board, willing or unwilling, and um, somehow fund it and go off and live the dream and sail into the sunset. And what happened? 
Well, it all started quite well, actually. Um, we found a boat. I got a hint of my seasickness problems on the delivery trip from Auckland to Littleton, but dismissed it a little bit because I had backup skippers with me. The trip was fantastic. We did uh, several months uh, with the family aboard. But um, we soon realised that uh, I was unable to do any coastal trips safely. So if we wanted to go across Cook Strait or uh, along the coast of New Zealand or to some of the islands, we'd have to take backup skippers. And, you know, the, the family weren't sufficiently trained enough that if I was come to seasickness and was laying on my back for three days which is one of the things that can happen and has happened to me in a trip previously, that they would take absolute full control, not only take full control, but look after me as well and make sure that I was hydrated and got the correct medical treatment. So it's a pretty serious um, condition. And I think uh, it's possibly hard to appreciate how serious it is unless you suffer from it. That's so hard. And it must have been, it must have been no mean feat to sell everything up, convince the family to go and live on a yacht and then find that you were unable to um, unable to do it because you were so incapacitated. You must have fought against it pretty hard after being that committed. Yeah, it's one of those sort of fall from grace moments, really. And, um, you know, you have these dreams and uh, you pull out all the stops to make them work. I mean, you know, we sold the family home and we gave up a, a very good... I gave up a very good career or put it on pause and my wife was working and my children who were eight and ten at the time had a small community of friends. So there was a little bit of reluctance initially to go on the trip but also a lot of excitement as well. I mean, as a family, we are used to doing... uh, um, things a little bit out the box. I mean, after all, only uh, seven years earlier, we'd emigrated from England to New Zealand, and that was very exciting in itself. So here we were again, going against the grain of the system and getting a boat, and and I guess uh, kind of running away like you do. You make the point very well that when people hear seasickness, they might think, oh, a little bit of a chuck on the ferry. But it's a lot bigger than that for a lot of people, totally incapacitating people and making uh, ocean-going you know, a, a total nightmare. But you, you kept your your kind of um, your, your interest uh, going with the commercial ticket and and teaching people to sail. Well, how was it that you were still looking out for an idea? And and tell me about what happened when you saw VR come along. Well, I guess there's three points. I just want to remind people that with seasickness, it can come on within a matter of minutes, incredibly quickly, and you can be completely incapacitated within minutes. Well, I mean, I didn't want to give up sailing completely. I mean, I'm very passionate about sailing. It's a, it's a hobby as well as a, a sport. So I knew that I was okay on the inner harbours. Uh, it's the oceans that cause the problem with the, the large heave of the, the swells that you get out there. So when we came back to uh, Littleton, um, we decided just to go back to the normal full-time job um, which was a fairly easy job, but it's pretty disheartening, to be honest. And then I decided to set up a sailing school with a good friend of mine and uh, continue, I guess, my interest in sailing. What I, I was doing, I, I gather, is really teaching other people to sail and to fulfil their dreams, which was nice in, in one way, but it was kind of, well, it reminded me of our failings that, Well, I guess it wasn't a fail. We went away for six months and enjoyed it, but we would have liked to have gone away for a couple of years. 
So I taught around about two or three hundred people over the ten-year period uh, on a yacht in Littleton uh, to fulfil their dreams. And many of them have. They've gone off with their children or just with their partners. And uh, some of them have sailed halfway around the world. Some of them have um, just sailed locally. As part of my job, I started to look at virtual reality as a training tool and as a retail. It started picking up in the retail market with companies like Oculus and Facebook. And there's quite a wave of interest in virtual reality itself. That wave uh, soon came crashing down, interestingly enough, around about four years ago when 25 to 30% of the users were buying the headsets and basically using them for a couple of times and then putting them down again. And the problem in the industry, the whole industry, was motion sickness. So the industry has been trying really hard to work out what's happening with virtual reality and why it's causing people to be effectively seasick, as motion sickness and seasickness are incredibly similar things. I wondered to myself if virtual reality could cause motion sickness so quickly... I wondered if anybody had had sort of reversed all the parameters that it works in. I mean, it works in a steady room, for example. The walls don't move. It references the room. I wondered if I tried out virtual reality on a boat, would it have any effect on scene six at all? So I, I tried a couple of things and that wasn't too successful, but then I created a very small program with a special environment. So I effectively, I... I uh, got virtual reality modified. And then one evening I saw there's a bit of a storm coming over, so I thought, what a great time to try out this virtual reality device. So I rowed out my little dinghy out to the boat, which is in a mooring, and the boat was jumping up and down, and I managed to get onto the boat. That was quite uh, precarious. Get inside, down inside the boat, near the engine, where I knew I'd feel seasick after a short while of time, because you lose reference of the horizon through the windows or through the cockpit or companionway and sure enough within probably a few minutes I started to feel the symptoms of nausea sweating anxiety heart rate and I knew that uh, this wouldn't end well so I put on my makeshift virtual reality which was then made out of a five dollar cardboard um, virtual reality headset that Google made and my work phone slotted the phone in, ran up my program, and I was really pleased to find that I had some relief. It was stopping me going further down in my seasickness sim- symptoms. And it, that's the point. I knew I was onto something. That's amazing. And to go from that insight that um, if it can get you into motion sickness this quickly, maybe it could be a tool to get you out if you reverse the kind of way that it um, led your senses down the wrong kind of rabbit hole, <laughs> if you could use it to send you back up it. Um, that's that's amazing. How did you go about, after working out that you could stop the symptoms, actually reversing them? Well, I guess I guess um, in a lot of businesses, you, you hear these terms of how an invention or how a product comes to light and you hear about light bulb moments light bulb moments are great but you need to keep that light bulb switched on and I think there was an element of luck and the element of luck for us was that the stars had sort of lined up you see I'd been an IT engineer for 30 years so that was a benefit I'd been a commercial skipper and um, 
commercial and uh, yachting coach for 10 years. So that was handy. I got terribly seasick. <laughs> that wasn't so great. <laughs> and, and I knew about virtual reality, but the, the added bonus on the top was that the very first portable virtual reality headset had just been launched. And that was the Oculus Go. Now, up until that point, for the previous five to 10 years of development, uh, five out in the retail, but 10 years of development in VR generally, all systems were tethered via a wire to a very powerful computer. But Oculus and Facebook saw the opportunity of creating these uh, mobile. So I was able to take out uh, an experiment with uh, mobile devices. I, I mean, initially we used mobile phones as a, as a cheap way of trying to emulate VR, but that, to be honest, uh, there was only one company who ever got it good, and that was, that was Samsung, and that was in partnership with Oculus. So it was, it was a doomed product, the mobile phone one. So really, the, the stars lining up are, are quite important in business. You, you've got to get everything in a row, get your ducks in a row, and then uh, a product can pop out of the end. So having access to that kind of mobile tech, you yeah, how, how do you go about, like, you mentioned before the horizon line is so important and the way that VR um, links to the room to create balance. How do you, on a, in a room without, uh, without balance, create that sense for people? And how do you kind of walk people back from feeling sick to feeling, um, to, to kind of, acclimatising to that, that movement? Well, one of the limitations with virtual reality that we had to overcome was that the power of the headset was nowhere near the power of a PC system, which the previous ones were tethered to. Luckily enough, my son, Alexander Jackson, he had been playing about with virtual reality with games for quite a while, and he'd had a bit of experience as well with game design in virtual reality. So between myself and Alex, who we, we actually get on very well as father and son. I mean, you'd have to if you're on your family and you've only got on a 40-foot boat, wouldn't you? <laughs> and your wife. <laughs> so as a family, we do get on well. And Alex pointed out to me that um, he said, Dad, this might not work. He said, because I don't think the headsets have got enough power in order to do some of the tasks that you're requesting. So we actually had quite a long period of experimentation with headsets, constantly going backwards and forwards to the boat to see if we could optimise the headset itself. We would come up with um, a particular scene that the user could see on the PC and build that scene and then put it on the headset only to find that the, the headset couldn't keep up, the power couldn't keep up. And unless you get that process a hundred percent right, and I mean a hundred percent, you actually cause motion sickness again. So the key factors in that scene, I'd love to tell you about, but they've taken three years to develop. But one of the obvious well-known ones is to do with the, the frame rate, the amount of time it updates the headset every, every second. And that was one of the critical things that we learned. If you want to remove seasickness, the, the gear's got to be good. Next of all, let's just talk about horizons a little bit. If you're a sailor, you'll know that looking at a horizon is one of the preventative measures of stopping you getting seasickness. So let's have a look at what causes that. And I want to give you an analogy. If you go out in the car, drive to work, 
Do you get motion sick, Simon? No, I'm I'm um I'm pretty solid, but my kids can look at um a, a screen for about one point two seconds and uh need to <laughs> need to throw up and if if I look like I'm enjoying taking a corner too much, they all want to throw up. <laughs> yep, it's a very common problem. And the other problem too is the passenger can also get motion sick. So you might ask yourself, well, hang on, if the passenger and the driver have exactly the same perspective, why is one of them getting sick and the other isn't? And the reason to do that, to do with that is what you're looking at and the amount of focus that you retain. So, for example, a driver has to look at the road Otherwise, it'll crash. But the passenger doesn't. Their eyes can wander to one side or items that you pass of interest or even down into the vehicle looking at, for example, changing the air conditioning or looking at your mobile phone. And that's when you have a problem. And the same problem occurs to people in boats. So from my teaching of people to sail over 10 years, I learned a trick that was passed down to me by old sailing dogs who I knew that if one of my students started to feel sick, I would recognise the symptoms before they were sick of them withdrawing and looking down, and I would put them on the tiller. And by this, it was like taking them out of the passenger seat and putting them into the driving seat and saying, drive. They were in charge. They had a purpose. They had a focus, which is really important. And their seasickness would reverse incredibly quickly. In fact, under 15 minutes in every single case. And it's these type of learnings and trying to study and understand why that worked that helped us develop sea level. So if you look at the name sea level, it is nothing to do with the rising of the sea. It's spelt differently. It's the fact that your eyes are seeing a level horizon. Yeah, and how how does it help people stay level and not just kind of, you know, only feel better while they've got the kit on? Exactly. And you can see from our name, the product name, which is spelt slightly differently, uh, it's not the sea level, the rising of the sea. It's a fact of seeing level because we know looking at a steady horizon can really help in the seasickness um, recovery. So one, one of the learns, learnings that we took from the sailing school was that, and my experience out in sea, is that I could actually learn the boat's movements and accept the boat's movements. So seasickness comes on depending on the amount of visual disturbance that you're incurring. So, for example, if you're outside in the cockpit of a boat and 80% of what you see is land and it's fixed and it's not moving and only 20% of what you see is the boat moving, you probably won't get seasick. But if you start looking down into the boat and you lose those reference points, then your body thinks that literally the mountains are moving. There's a a lot of theory about the causes of seasickness, but one of them is that, well, if the mountains and land are moving, or your body, your eyes think they are and they report to you you are, then you're you're either drunk or you've actually eaten some poison. So there's a a, a common theory that uh, going back many, many years of our evolution that we did quite often eat poison, bad food, and that our body's reaction was that if it saw things moving, if our eyes were reporting that the mountains were moving, it should vomit out that food. (laughs) So that's the body's reaction to... And not stop until you've very thoroughly got rid of everything that could (laughs) hurt you. 
totally. And then you, but unfortunately, your body goes into shock. Now, uh, some people say it's emotional shock. Some people say it's physical shock. It does have physical shock symptoms of heart rate, uh, sweating. Uh, there's there's several of them actually that happen in a whole chain of events. So, we, we knew that um, that we could possibly control if we could control how uh, how much the body doesn't fall into this um, this pit of not being able to to train itself again we might be able to actually teach people how to accept the movements of the boat while they're on the boat so a little point here if you are feeling seasick on a boat what are your options at the moment well option one is to go outside and if it's daylight and if you're near land constantly look at the horizon and do nothing else uh, and then over a period of a, a couple of days, you might get better. The other is to take some pills, which does a disconnect from the visual to the ear. And of course, they do have symptoms, side side effects, and they take 24 hours to actually kick in. Well, what, sorry, one, to, one to two days to really kick in. So there aren't many options for instant relief and sea level offers that. You can just put it on and uh, straight away in 15 minutes you're feeling better. But when our program continues, it continues into the habituation training or the incremental neural training as we call it. And this introduces vessel movement into the virtual reality scene. The purpose of this is to train the brain into what the vessel's doing, but in a very controlled manner. And we do this with an additional piece of equipment called our SLDC, our sea level data collector. The sea level data collector is a box of patented tricks that sits on the vessel, vessel and it is tuned to that particular type of vessel, because every vessel's movement in the sea is different. And that sends data live via Wi-Fi connection to the headsets. The user goes through a treatment process up to one hour, and it can be repeated if necessary, of slowly introducing the vessel's movement into the virtual reality scene. This allows the user to learn the vessel's movement, but without falling into uh, physical and emotional shock, which is what happens when you go into full seasickness. If you love the spin-off, the best way to show it is to become part of the spin-off members. This is the fund that helps us keep free and accessible to all without a paywall. It also funds some of our most important and acclaimed journalism. Check it out through the spin-off. Kia ora, I'm Sophie. I'm Simon. And I'm Alice, and together we host the spin-off's food podcast, Dietary Requirements. Join us each month as we explore a vast culinary landscape, from the gourmet... Ooh la la. ...to your more hearty tucker. Onion dip, anyone? Everything's on the table in Dietary Requirements. Subscribe wherever you listen to all your favourite podcasts. <laughs> must be amazing for people who have been really afflicted by seasickness to be able to kind of um, to, to, to reach an equilibrium on a, a vessel that maybe they never have before. What's the effect when people when people use it? Well, it's quite interesting because seasickness is one of those um, 
it's not a linear condition. So, you know, I guess some if you cut your hand, the process for fixing that is actually quite straightforward and very measurable and very easy to deal with. Whereas when you fall seasick, seasick, there are a number of things that can cause that. What you eat, the type of vessel, how susceptible you are, your age, your gender and your ethnicity. All of those factors come into play. And then you've got the vessel itself, where you're sitting in the vessel, the amount of natural light, fresh air, and even the smells and what's happening around you. It is virtually impossible to recreate quantitative conditions every time to test any sickness product. You could do it in a lab, in a spinning chair, and NASA have been doing this for years. And so flight schools. But the issue is you're not going to, you're not going to duplicate what the person will experience when they go out. It's different every time. So what we find is our results with people in the INT stages will vary. Some people are incredibly quick at learning. I remember on our trip down to Antarctica with Heritage Expeditions, we had a couple of weeks. They invited us aboard to trial the product, which is a fantastic opportunity. And I had one chap come down for his meal, beautiful meals they have, and he looked at it and the ship was rolling about 20 degrees either side. I mean, we're out in the middle of the ocean on the way down to Antarctica. He said, I just can't do that. I can't, can't eat my dinner. He said, can I have one of your sea level headsets, please? So I passed him one over and he said, I'll be back. <laughs> and he went away. And 20 minutes he came back with a smile on his face and said, that's better, I can have my dinner now. And he did. And that's one of many stories we had of people using sea level in real life situations. But I can't guarantee that it will take exactly 20 minutes the next time he uses it or the time after. It varies. But the system does adopt for that. And how did you go about taking this kind of like really cool concept and um, technological uh, innovation and turning it into a business. Like, tell me about kind of your journey with, with Callahan and with um, the, the R&D grants and how that helped kind of, you, you know, take this and, and um, enable you to get the technology to a state that could be used. Well, I guess that's a different journey for every company and individual. Our particular journey, we were blessed to meet a couple of people. So Sea Level is made of three directors. I guess my first blessing was my son, who enabled us to create some very rudimentary prototypes just to give us some confidence that we were onto something. I then was introduced to a chap called Grant Edmondson, who's a commercial lawyer. Grant saw an opportunity in the product, and he gave me help and advice on how to raise some money for the product and take the very first steps. So having his advice early on board was critical for us. We then approached the other now director of the company, there's a chap called Graham Rule. Now, Graham Rule has been bus in business for many, many years, and he's a successful businessman and entrepreneur. I, I'd known Graham for five or six years anyway because I've been helping him uh, uh, maintain his, his network systems because I was an IT engineer, support engineer, so I'd often meet him on site. Graham, it, this, this is actually quite critical for any business, I think. When you're going to... In, uh, say to other people what you've done and what you've found and can you help me? It's not about the money. It's not about 
if you give me, you know, $200,000, then I think in five years I can make that $500,000. The question is, you know, not all inventors are good businessmen. You need commercial brains as well. So by having the three of us now, we've got a really good mixture of business sense in the company. And what Graham brought to the business, I think, which is just as important as investing funds, was I a mentor. So to, to us, Graham is a mentor as well as an investor. And Graham pops in regularly into the company and involves himself in the company. Colin, and tell me about that journey of like um, working with Callahan and um, accessing that R&D grant that helped you make the, um, the kind of first technology. Early on in the process, we were informed that if we were going to do something innovative, then there was a possible chance that Callaghan Innovations, the government agency, may be able to help us with some of that funding and some of the advice and the journey that we we're about to take. We approached Callaghan quite early on in the process. In fact, I was, I was quite surprised that when Rob Lawrence from Callaghan came around to my home and saw my $5 bit of cardboard, my mobile phone, that he thought I wasn't completely off my rocker. <laughs> so I tried to explain to Rob my concept and I slid the phone into this cardboard thing, asked him to put it on and showed him two images. One I had stabilised through our software and one I hadn't and I asked him to rock from side to side as if he were on a boat. But Rob saw the, the promise in that idea and we had quite a long discussion and he said, I, I, think, I think there's something in this and we at Callahan can support you with it. So that was quite a good confidence first step. And Callahan gave us two tasks to do. We had to, first of all, prove that we were working on something that was innovative and original. And then we had to make a proof of concept, like a very small prototype. So I went through a very nervous part of the company by working out if anybody else had done this before. And up until that point, I had been searching honestly probably every night the internet and groups and forums and discussions to see if anybody had tried virtual reality on a boat before. And I found nothing. In fact, it was so quiet that worried me even more. But we employed a, uh, a company who specializes in these patent searches and we did a freedom to operate search, which was funded uh, mainly by Callahan. And the result came clear. We were the first. Callahan helped us engage uh, with the software company to make a beta product for proof of concept. And that worked very well for us. We were able to take a product to the next stage with Callahan to say, we've got a, a very uh, straightforward beta uh, prototype product and we've got a freedom to operate search. And that allowed us to go to stage two. Oh, that's awesome. What, what stage is the business at now? I mean, COVID must have really, seeing there was such a kind of focus on tourism industries uh, and operators taking people out on vessels. What did COVID do and what are you focusing on now? Well, I guess like a lot of many businesses, I thought when COVID came along, the doors would close. I mean, up until that point, we'd lined up two fantastic clients and both of them were local on our doorstep. They were commercial operators and sea level would be ideal for them. Both of those clients closed their doors on us and they couldn't afford to sustain business 
and both went into shutdown. To us, uh, that was a huge blow. And we reconsidered our pathway forward. Do we pause the whole company as a very good, strong option? Do I go back to work? What do we do? Or do we take advantage of this time? So as a group, Graham, Grant, myself, we decided to make use of the time while COVID was uh, forcing us to stay at home. And we uh, launched a new website, which is sealevel.com and seasick.com, which took a bit of a struggle to get. <laughs> and with this website, we also produced a support website with all the frequently asked questions. These are all the kinds of things you need to do in business, but you never have time to do. It's all that additional stuff that, you know, when you're polishing. So what we did is we polished the business while COVID was in. We got our, some marketing material done, instructions, uh, new cases, and just polish the whole product from prototype to a commercial product. I had in the background that, okay, I had a dream of having a headset in every first-class cabin on every cruise ship. And in fact, we'd started to engage with the cruise ship uh, companies with uh, some high enthusiasm. But with all those doors firmly closed, we went and revisited a couple of people who were on our, on our um, radar and one of them was the wind farm market. Now, when you mention wind farms, offshore wind farms in New Zealand or Australasia, it doesn't lift many eyebrows. But when you mention it in Europe, it's completely different. The North Sea is getting slowly full of wind farms. The North Sea is split up into areas owned by each European country, and each country is slowly filling their area up with huge turbines and in fact these turbines are being upgraded i mean i never knew for example they only had a lifespan of about 15 to 20 years maximum so all the light all the wind farms that were put in in the 90s and the early 2000s are, are actually being replaced so they take them out and they put one in that that's two to three times the size and produces two to three times the amount of power for the same amount of foot, footprint but all of this work combined with the fact that the UK have said they want to be fully wind power de dependent by 2030. Means there's a lot of activity going on there, and there's a lot of people going out in boats every day who are not seafarers. And they're going to these wind turbines, which are often half an hour to an hour offshore. And they're going out in high speed vessels in choppy conditions in order to maintain and keep these wind farms going. So that to us is now one of our key markets and we've already started engaging. We've done our research into the, into the problem and we've identified how much of a problem it is and we started engaging with one of the leading companies in Europe who are now evaluating our equipment uh, in such locations like t Taiwan. Oh, that's so exciting. And, you know, what's, what would your advice be for entrepreneurs who did have kind of a, a, a big problem that they'd found and a unique solution um, to, to, get, uh, to get it going and to get this business happening? Well, you know, there's a lot of naysayers out there. And I want to give you an example of this. Um, we wanted to contact the Navy. Now, if you go through the official rate, routes of contacting the Navy, which most people look at through the procurement route, 
uh, you have to meet many different uh, industry standards. You have your company has to have a good history behind you. And how can you uh, attain to any of those um, high standards to engage with the military if you're a startup company and you've got something new? I mean, it seems like an impossible task. And everybody told us it's impossible. Forget it. What you need to do is get a few headsets out there, get some referrals, get going for five years and then go to them. That really frustrated me. So I, I thought, well, how else can we do this? So I thought, I'll just ring them. I'll just phone them. So I did. And I spoke to a receptionist who said, wow, that sounds actually quite cool. And I got the receptionist engaged a little bit. And she said, I'll just put you through to, um, to somebody in the Navy. And that's how it started, you see. Sometimes you've got to break out that box a little bit and think, do you know what? Everybody's telling me I can't do it. So, so I, I'm just going to go off on a, on a bit of a tangent here and just phone them, you know, just bypass all this, all this obstacles that get put in your way. <laughs> that's fantastic. And that's great. And, and as a final thought, like what will success be for you with sea level? We see sea level as being a critical part of the medical kit in every commercial vessel anywhere. As soon as key personnel feel seasick and they've got a job to do, the first thing they should do is go to the medical room and wear sea level. And that will restore them, restore them to a situation where they can do their job again. I see that we're on a beginning of a long journey with virtual reality and motion sickness and seasickness. I see the huge opportunities with autonomous cars, with nobody driving anymore. And, well, 30% of people getting sick on a daily basis before they've even got to work. There's huge opportunities in front of us. And we're just at the beginning of our learning of how virtual reality can remove this horrible condition. So I'm pretty excited about the, the, next, the next few years of this product. Yeah, wow, that's so cool. Well, thank you so much um, for, for joining us to talk through the product and can't wait to see where you take it next. And it makes so much sense that it is, um, you know, every car, yeah, every, every uh, trip, trip to work and everyone using virtual reality uh, for entertainment could all benefit from, from this idea. Um, so, yeah, ch- check it out at sealevel.com. Um, and thanks for joining us today, Dudley Jackson, co-founder uh, and inventor. You're very welcome. Thank you, Simon. Thank you so much to Tina Tiller for producing. And thank you so much for having us along uh, in your ears. Cheers. You've been listening to Business is Boring, presented by Simon Pound. And brought to you by the spin-off and Callahan Innovation. From the Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring, brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? 
Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.